I'm Leanne Lord, and this is Human Story. People are different. That's a good thing. But in recent years, it feels like some differences have deepened to the point that we look at friends and family on social media, or even across the dinner table, saying and believing things that are just baffling to us. And we wonder, how did you get that way? The philosopher Jonathan M.S. Pierce spends a lot of time thinking about questions like that. If it's all nature and nurture, how do people with very similar circumstances, or even very similar genes, end up with wildly different ways of seeing the world? In this episode of Human Story, Jonathan turns the question inward. Why did he end up so different from his parents and his peers? Who am I? I'm not sure I know. And who's to say that what I think about who I am is right? Maybe my friends, my family, my partner have a more accurate understanding of who I am than I do myself. Who is right? Is anyone right? I'm a philosopher. You might have guessed I love this kind of question, who we are and what made us this way. I get myself fascinated. We could be here a long time. Alas, I will refrain from too many rabbit holes in case I get stuck with my head in the earth and my posterior on public podcast display. What I want to share with you is why I am a liberal, politically forthright atheist who likes to ask questions like this. I may be wrong, but I think it has something to do with my parents. And also, quite definitely not my parents. Let me explain. When we talk about causality, how one thing causes another to happen, things get messy. And we invariably get back to saying something along the lines of, it's the Big Bang, what did it? But for this excursion into myself, I'm going to try and stay within the last 50 years. Let me start with some context. I'm British, can't you tell? My parents were in the armed forces and lived around the world, though we have always had a home on the south coast of the UK. When I was born, my mother had come out of the forces to parent me and my two older sisters. From the age of seven onwards, my father was stationed abroad again, and I enjoyed living in Hong Kong, the north of England and Gibraltar. I tell you this so you understand what happened from the age of seven to eighteen. When you have to move every two and a half years and the forces used to contribute an awful lot to tuition, forces kids often went off to boarding school. When I look at my own twin boys, presently 11, I realise that seven was a young age to leave my family for most of the year. When you live abroad, you don't even go home for half term. I would be spending weekends at school friends' houses and half terms with friends or other relatives. Why am I bothering with this detail? Well, if the psychologist Jonathan Haidt were listening, and for all I know he may be, he would be nodding and saying, go on, in that psychological way. Haidt has done a lot of brilliant work in moral foundations, the values that lie right at the heart of the way each of us decides what is right and what is wrong. Haidt's research identified five moral foundations, avoidance of harm, fairness, loyalty, 
authority and purity. He found political liberals to value the first two very highly, avoidance of harm and fairness, and to care much less about loyalty, authority or purity. Conservatives tend to register lower on the first two than liberals than at the same level across the other three. He also found that liberals have a high openness to new experiences, while conservatives prefer things that are dependable and predictable. So you might expect the Royal Navy to be mostly full of conservatives, given the draw of loyalty and authority and predictability. And you'd be right. Not a lot of godless firebrand leftists with a penchant for new experiences and equality in the Navy. My parents fit the mould very well, sitting comfortably on the right and happy to slide further as the years go on. But I am deeply interested in fairness, in questioning everything, including authority and tradition. Purity and a small, confined in-group are not my idea of fun, and God is not my bag. I wonder whether my divergence from my parents in my core identity might well be down to my physical separation from them at such a young age, through adolescence and out the other side. Boarding school took me from 7 to 18. Then I had a year backpacking around Australia and elsewhere, followed by four years at university at the other end of the UK, including a year teaching in France, swiftly capped off with another year backpacking around the world before returning to the nest. This meant that I really had spent most of my time up until the age of 25 away from my parents. And for large periods of the time, when I was at home, I was living in places like Hong Kong and Gibraltar and experiencing myriad fun things in a whirlwind social environment involving multitudes of people and awesome activities put on by the forces communities. Even when I was at home for the holidays, my father was often at sea or at work and I would be doing all sorts of exciting things, especially as a teenager. Windsurfing, water skiing, rock climbing, excursions, hanging out at the beach with friends, yada yada yada, all courtesy of the provisions for naval families. It was a good life. My parents were good parents and we all got on very well and still do, my sisters, parents and me. The point being about all this lucky privilege that I never merited, was that my folks were largely absent, and not to a detrimental effect. When liberals are often classified by having a greater openness to new experience, new experiences were thrust upon me throughout my youth and I lapped them up unwittingly. This might well have helped to mould me into the person I would become. Sometimes I look back at my life and wonder what I would be like had my parents had more regular jobs and I had been educated at a school down the road, returning every day to do homework and be in the company of my immediate family. What would I have become? It is safe to say that we are the product of both nature and nurture. But when both nature 
and nurture are housed within the same four walls and under the same roof, the apple can do no other than to fall under the tree. I was very lucky that, as an apple, I fell into a river and was allowed to float off to faraway places, with the trees who bore me receding into the distance. The sapling I became, whilst having some of those characteristics of my parent trees, was able to find root in very different earth, nourished by very different nutrients, and in an open field, under a sunnier sky, in a different climate. As a former teacher, I have seen how similar children can so often be to their parents. Genetics and environment conspire to replicate. But when the apple is hurled across the world, even though it has a particular appleness, it grows in a very different way. Or so I like to think. Don't get me wrong, I always have had a very good relationship with my parents, but the older I got, the more I didn't want to be like them. I must be a funny mix of genes, because even in the melting pot environment of an English boarding school, there were robust early liberal tendencies, possibly borne out by a solid sense of empathy. I have a very strong sense of fairness and am driven to minimise harm to others, no matter their background. This is a core aspect of my political and moral compass, and at the time made me stick out at the sort of school you can imagine I went to. Rarely havens for such liberal types. These are the type of characteristics for which I question the heritage. Even though both parents have served in the armed forces, where one needed a sense of duty, tradition and other characteristics necessary for national service, they both have elements of empathy, and certainly used to be far more moderate. I think I can tease out my own liberal sensibilities from a complex combination of both of my parents' personality types, combined with a different journey. Perhaps part of my personality is being confident in not feeling like I need to fit in. Perhaps a unique mix of genetics of my parents created a person who had some key fundamental differences to them, and absent of their immediate and constant nurturing, these early marginal variances were allowed to grow and flourish. It's the butterfly effect, where it is said that small changes such as a butterfly flapping its wings can eventually lead to a tornado. Small effects can, in time, end up leading to huge differences. These small variances in my genetic code were allowed to lead to much greater social, political and moral differences over time due to the environment not being controlled by the very keepers and givers of my genetic code. In my first school, where I was until the age of 13, we had scripture lessons. The school was nominally religious in the way that schools at the time were. I didn't take scripture lessons too seriously, preferring to graffiti on the images in my Good News Bible in fairly sacrilegious ways. I have very fond memories of this school and the people there, giving me skills and interests that would stay with me a lifetime. Skills and interests I never would have gained from a home environment. And it didn't inculcate into me 
a strong religiosity. We had assemblies that had a loose religious backdrop and sung some lovely classic hymns. My next school, until aged 18, was a more rigidly Christian school. Or, more accurately, a school with a broadly Christian framework with a lot of Christian bells and whistles. Choristers in cassocks and neck ruffs singing hymns at Christingle as they walked the cloisters with candles stuffed in oranges. That sort of thing. Yep, it's a world apart from council schools in deprived areas that I made a career teaching in for well over a decade before getting progressive multiple sclerosis. But that's another story. I tried to balance my fortuitous privilege by working hard to make a difference to those less fortunate than myself. I hope I don't come off as some hopeless champagne socialist. Back to school. Like many private boarding schools, there was a school chapel that we had to attend twice in the week and once at the weekend. Almost none of the children were religious in any meaningful way, which, considering the amount of time we had to spend in the chapel over our academic careers, was pretty impressive. This had a lot to do with forced attendance, where pupils resented the time spent listening to someone droning on about what was to them excruciatingly dull and irrelevant. That chapel time was more about boredom and learning repeated ritual than any kind of spiritual or theological development. I can still cite certain prayers and sing a repertoire of English hymns. It's never got me a job and certainly hasn't got me closer to God, though. I find this particularly interesting in now having those twin 11-year-olds who have never been to church, don't know those hymns and don't know those prayers. It's odd to think that whole context is missing entirely from their lives. Are they any the worse for it? Will losing that knowledge from general social culture be a great loss as fewer and fewer modern British children never really experience church or religious ceremony and ritual? Food for thought. What I can say from the religious context of my school is that even though I was confirmed and called myself a Christian, I was one of the worst Christians you can think of. No, I didn't bully others, nick the Eucharist wine and pull the legs off daddy long legs. Actually, I think I was morally pretty decent. I mean that my understanding of Christianity was shocking. Had that private school been in the US, you can guarantee we would have had Bible study or religious education lessons aplenty and theological development would have been top of the agenda. But no, this was religiously apathetic Church of England, England, after all. Instead, we were expected to learn Christianity by chapel attendance alone, picking up the pieces and building a picture like a blind man piecing together a second-hand jigsaw puzzle. I didn't have the faintest clue about how Christianity worked, not a scooby-doo as we say. Even though the bishop laid his hand on my nervous head during my confirmation and I was in the club, I was theologically clueless. Jesus died for our sins? I had no idea. I don't think I even knew what atonement meant, let alone how it worked. And for the record, I still don't know how it works. Actually, I'll go one further. It doesn't work because it can't work because it's incoherent.
Stay on target. We're too close. Stay on target. The Holy Trinity? No idea. Okay, what I just said about the incoherence of the atonement applies equally to the philosophical mess that is the Holy Trinity. Stay on target. I think I thought, like a lot of other people, I've come to realise, that Jesus was God's actual son and that the son of God was a literal rather than a Jewish symbolic phrase. I didn't even know what the word incarnate meant. When I look back on my adolescent dabbling with Christianity, I now recognise that it was really just a form of loose theism that was developed out of the Christian context of my schooling and, to a wider extent, nominal Church of England British society. I knew little of the Bible, of the narratives past the big stories. For me, Christianity was about sometimes praying to God at night and asking for stuff or pleading just before a test and thanking God in my head just after I found the questions to be easy, and forgetting to berate God when they were hard. But I never really mentioned religion outside of the conversations I had with God in my head, and, really, general adolescent life was my religion. Music, girls, drink, fun, and all the predictable variables dictated my teenage life. Religion was a quaint backdrop to my life, but never drove it, or any of the decisions in it. We often hear, in sceptical circles, about the no-true-Scotsman fallacy, and I think about this concerning my own Christianity at this time. In case you aren't familiar, Craig might say, No true Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. Fergus replies, but my Uncle Angus is a Scotsman and he puts sugar on his porridge. Craig retorts, but no true Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. Is Craig the arbiter of what defines a Scotsman? Is there an objective standard? The same goes for the term Christian. What right did I have to call myself a Christian? Did I qualify? since I really understood next to nothing and made up an awful lot of my own belief system out of not even half-comprehended theology. The same for anyone professing to be Christian. Are they? Have they got it right? What are the core tenets that qualify a Christian? Who decides? Does anything disqualify them? Does just thinking you are yourself a Christian, as I did, make you one? The debate is an interesting one but I won't distract myself with further detour. Anyway, I must have been a Christian because I even wore a crucifix. Everyone likes the virtue signal, right? I've still got it in a box somewhere. I remember starting not to wear it when I realised at about 17 that I didn't really believe anymore. When I started questioning. I think it was a problem of evil, why there is so much suffering in the world given an all-loving, powerful and knowing God that started the deconversion. But that desire to question, though I've since nurtured that desire, from where did it originally come? Was it innate? Was this a genetic gift or a learnt tool? My sisters tell me the questioning really started around 17. 
They also agreed that boarding school was what shaped and parented us to a large degree, and not in a damaging way that it can be for so many people. As one of my sisters said to me, there was a great parental absence that allowed us to still maintain a healthy upbringing, and she wouldn't have changed that for all the tea in the world. And, as a family, we bloody love tea, so that's saying a lot. This 17-year-old version of me, that was starting to take great interest in the world, starting to question received wisdom and authority in a desire for greater understanding, wasn't a creation in a vacuum, but a 17-year project to that point. Boarding school is an odd contradiction. So much conformity, but strangely so much freedom too. A lot of free time to roam the huge school grounds, a lot of free time to think and to be with friends, a lot of free time to be creative, a lot of free time to get to know other people and how they work. You are living in such close proximity, with a great number of other people, confined and yet free, conformed in many ways, and yet you are able to create your own space in others. This questioning and desire for new experiences was compounded when I went backpacking around the world after I'd finished school. God belief was easily rejected as I witnessed firsthand the plurality of beliefs, observed the poverty, started to understand the problem of evil properly, saw golden top mosques next to shanty towns on stilts surrounded by filth. Oh, and talked with and got to know a vast array of different kinds of people from every corner of the spherical world. All of that wonderful array of people, differing cultures, ethnicities, beliefs, demographics, sexualities, experiences, I think helped to underwrite my shedding of God thought. There's a lot to be said for meeting and recognising your place in such a self-sewn patchwork quilt of humanity. And the world was, to me, very obviously a human one, or a natural one so often disfigured and misunderstood by humans. I began to increasingly clearly recognise that God was surely absent. He'd certainly been on holiday for 2,000 years and was very likely never there at all. I don't think I really deconverted, not in the fundamental and theological ways that so many people I have spoken to have. I've edited a book of deconversion accounts, so am well aware of the hugely life-altering mental earthquakes that people can experience. Mine was more of a growing humanism than a repudiation of God. Though that divine rejection is something I now do a lot, intellectually speaking. And then living for four years with engineers and scientists at university continued this trend. When I compare my upbringing to that of my parents, both following their own parental footsteps into the armed forces, I start to understand our moral, social and political differences. Their journey reflected growing conformity through adolescence into early working life. Mine reflected growing freedoms through adolescence and then backpacking in university and travelling again until finally settling on working life. That working life started in corporate management and continued for a number of years, but this was to be rejected as it didn't sit well with my intellectual and moral disposition. 
teaching and then philosophy followed thereafter, a much better fit for who I had become. In the end, the role of my parents was, more often than not, fulfilled by my peers, friends, other parents with whom I stayed, teachers, the myriad people I met throughout my youthful travels and countries I lived in. That maelstrom of influences from the age of seven onwards started to make me who I am today. This was a river that carried my apple further from the tree that initially bore me. Sometimes I think I forged this path myself, trekking off the map, hacking through brambles and undergrowth with a machete that I had fashioned on my own. And then I question whether I am more likely that apple, drifting on the currents of external influences, being carried and not so much forging trails. In one sense, I could find my own way in life, author my own path independent of my parents. On the other hand, the satnav that I'd used to navigate the terrain of my youth was inherited from my parents, and the terrain through which I travelled was not of my own making. It's hard to keep away from the nature-nurture debate. And, though it is of course nature and nurture, we are dealt our cards of nature at the beginning of the game of life, and these define how we interact with the nurture, with the environment. I don't believe in free will. We do what we do because we are who we are in the situation we are and have been in. It's a truism, but no less true for being so. The question is to what extent we have, or rather how we interpret or understand, our volition and authorship in this process of journeying through life. I have many aspects of my parents' personalities, like all humans, aspects of the good and bad in both. But as similar as I am and must be in so many ways, the content of my knowledge and beliefs is very much my own. My politics, my God beliefs, the world of ideas that I care so much about and that informs my morality, they all differ hugely from, in particular, my father. Now it's about my own children. I can't afford to give them the opportunities and experiences I was lucky enough to receive. But the question is, how much space should I give them to become who they will become? I don't want them to become mini-me's, future near-clones of myself and their mother. But on the other hand, if I naturally think that my morality and beliefs are right, then I should surely want my children to be right like me. I would want those apples to grow in our shade. There has to be a sweet spot where we give our children just enough important pointers in life that they can leave our shade to find sunlight of their own. I guess it's nurturing in them the wisdom and the map-reading skills to find their own field in which to flourish that allows them to bloom giving them the strength and desire to play their own part in the growing health of the wider ecosystem. But I guess I was always going to say that, wasn't I? Jonathan Emmis Pierce is a philosopher, author and columnist writing about almost everything 
because everything is philosophy. Though multiple sclerosis has robbed him of his ability to play football with his twin boys, he continues to write, including his popular column at Only Sky. That was Episode 5 of Human Story, a podcast exploring the human experience from a secular point of view, one story at a time. Each episode, I'll bring you a different storyteller, one secular person sharing what it's like to be one of 7 billion living, feeling, thinking human creatures temporarily awake on a minor planet. So what's your story? If you have a secular perspective, a good story, and a gift for telling it, Go to onlysky.media slash submissions to submit an idea for an episode of your own. We're especially interested in post-religious stories, stories about life after you're done grappling with religion. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to live in your head and see the world through your eyes. That's onlysky.media slash submissions. Human Stories is a production of Only Sky Media, a home for journalism, storytelling, and opinion serving the growing community of the religiously unaffiliated. Our show is produced by Dale McGowan with music by Blue Dot Sessions. Visit us online and add your voice to the conversation at onlysky.media and subscribe to the Human Story Podcast on the service of your choice. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Lord. See you next time for Human Story. Human Story.